situated on the northern reaches of Ukraine in what was once the heart of the Western Soviet Empire. The Chernobyl Nuclear Exclusion Zone now consists of nearly 3,000 square kilometers of pristine forest that is eerily devoid of any sizable human population. At the heart of this atomic wasteland sits the now defunct and still highly radioactive husk of what was once the largest nuclear power plant in Ukraine. The core meltdown that occurred in the middle of the night in April 1986 spewed radioactive dust and steam several kilometers into the air, sending a cloud over all of Central and Northern Europe, tripping alarms at power stations as far away as Sweden. Before the dust had even settled, over 500,000 workers had to be dispatched in an attempt to seal the burning reactor from further contaminating the surroundings. Not only did this place an enormous physical and financial burden on the Soviet Union, but also a psychological one, in many ways bringing about the end of the USSR and casting a grave shadow of doubt over the nuclear energy industry throughout the world. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time-stealing. Hello, and welcome back to the Myth of the 20th Century Podcast. My name is Hans Lander. Uh, today I am joined by three very special men. I have uh, Mr. Adam Smith. Hey, everyone. I have uh, Nick Mason. Just with you. And I have uh, Mr. Titus Flavius here tonight. Good to be back with you, boys. Happy to be on. So tonight we are going to be talking about something that's actually been getting a lot more attention oh, about the last year or so uh, due to a, a revival in sort of pop culture interest, and that would be the Chernobyl accident which took place in the Soviet Union, towards the end of the Soviet Union, really. Um, the Soviet Union sort of collapsed a few years afterwards. And uh, we are going to be talking about, uh, really, the, the history behind Chernobyl, the politics behind Chernobyl, uh, some kind of more of a deep dive in some of the technical aspects of why this happened. And uh, I think we'll also comment on the recent miniseries that was uh, put out by HBO that uh, has revitalized a lot of interest in this topic. Um, so, uh, Adam, do we have any housekeeping items to be discussed? I think we got it covered last week, so for now let's, uh, let's just focus on the topic today. So, for those of you who don't know, uh, Chernobyl was effectively a... Uh, 
a nuclear accident, nuclear power plant accident in 1986 in uh, the Ukrainian SSR. Uh, a lot of people uh, might know it from various forms of pop culture. I think that's how most people have probably ingested the basics of it now. Uh, we were talking about this before the show. It's not really a big part of, uh, I think, American history, unless you maybe specialize in a field in college that would have to do with uh, Russian studies or, or you know, geopolitics or maybe even um, nuclear engineering. But Chernobyl is uh, really boiled down to uh, a couple key elements, I think, for the most part in everyone's mind, and that uh, it had to do with uh, the Soviet Union's sort of technical uh, incompetence and dilapidation towards the end of their empire. It had to do with a, a series of mistakes and a series of technical lapses by uh, sort of an, an um, underutilized and uh, very poorly trained uh, engineers. And it was really a, a cover-up cover job that there was this whole town of people nearby in Pripyat uh, and the, even the whole uh, region that this took place in was evacuated basically in a 24-hour period and emptied out. And uh, many of the victims of this disaster were sort of silenced by the Soviet Union and by the subsequent uh, Russian government, and have been mostly relegated to uh, you know, sort of the back pages of history in the minds of, of most people around the world outside of Eastern Europe and Russia. Uh, but increasingly, I think people want to look at Chernobyl and look at the fall of the Soviet Union because it sort of mirrors our own current predicament. And there's a lot of similarities to modern America that we'll try and touch on that you can find in this uh, sort of final fatal blow to what was once a very powerful and uh, fearsome empire that spanned a huge swath of the globe and commanded an incredible influence and power. Um, so Titus really came on to sort of lead us through this. He's done a lot of great work and I think he has a lot to say. So I'll let him sort of kick off the, the history behind uh, Chernobyl and everything else that happened. Let's go over the basics first. Um, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant uh, was officially known as the VI Lenin atomic power plant. Um, and it was it began construction in 1970 uh, in a remote region near uh, Ukraine's uh, northern border, uh, 15 kilometers northwest uh, from a small town called Chernobyl. Um, this location was chosen uh, because of the relative proximity uh, to Kiev, which is the capital, which is the capital of Ukraine, uh, as well as the ready water supply uh, of the Pripyat River. The gentleman who was uh, put in charge of the creation of the power plant, uh, as well as uh, you know, sort of this setup of the Atomgrad, which uh, or Atomic City, which became. Uh, known as, as Pripyat, um, was a man named Viktor Brokhanov. He was the, uh, he was a uh, deputy chief engineer of a thermal power station in eastern Ukraine. Uh, and at the age of 35, uh, he was appointed to, uh, as Chernobyl's director and was told to go out and build not only a, a, a power plant uh, for four power, uh, for, for four of four units, but also a city as well. So uh, let's talk about 
the I guess the the uh, the the power station first and then secondly. So <clears throat> construction of the plant uh, for unit one was commissioned on November 26, 1977, uh, following months of tests. Uh, and three more reactors uh, followed, Unit 2 in 1978, Unit 3 in 1981, at Unit 4, the uh, the one that will end up exploding in 1983. Um, these plants are, are massive, and um, you can guys you guys can can go on on YouTube and and there are uh, even modern sort of walkthroughs of these plants as well as pictures uh, at the time of, of the, the plant being constructed, they are massive, massive in, uh, institutions. Um, and they were housing four RBK, uh, RBMK 100 reactors. Touch on those in a bit. But let's talk about uh, Adamgrad uh, of uh, Pripyat City. This was a modern uh, city that was built uh, in conjunction with the, uh, uh, with the, with the reactors. Um, it was supposed to house up to uh, 50,000 citizens, uh, and it was uh, an, an Adam city. And these were highly sought um, cities in the Soviet Union because they were modern. Uh, the government spared no expense for these. And I have some uh, sort of a, a detailed listing of all of the amenities that uh, were built into this city. Um, so they, they had a hospital uh, as well as nearby clinics. They had 15 kindergartens, five schools, a vocational school and college, as well as a school of music and the arts. They had one expansive parks, uh, one expansive park, three smaller playgrounds, 10 gyms, three swimming pools, 10 shooting ranges, two stadiums, four libraries, and a cinema. They had their own newspaper. And uh, as far as retail shops, they had 25 uh, stores, including a bookshop, Supermarket, various uh, other uh, uh, you know sports shops and, and sundries, an, le an electronic store, um, as well as a large shopping center. Uh, also, uh, twenty-seven cafe and restaurants. Um, because of the ruralness of the Chernobyl power station, um, a lot of the staff were recent college graduates because not a lot of existing power uh, plant workers in the Soviet Union wanted to, you know, move and move their families and everything, uh, as well as their careers to this faraway spot in Chernobyl. So the average age uh, of a citizen in uh, Pripyat was in the early 20s. Uh, average age was, was 26. So this sort of shows one of the chief sort of issues <laughs> which we're going to get into, which is the general lack of experience of the workers in the in the power station. So, Titus, uh, first of all, where was uh, Brukhanov from originally? Brukhanov was in Uzbek. Uh, and it's funny, The uh, I, I read a, a really great book that actually just came out. And it came out right after the miniseries. Um, it's called Midnight at Chernobyl by Adam Higginbotham. Uh, I, I highly recommend it. It's actually a really great read. Um, there's a lot of really interesting sort of, he gets into like the, the personalities of, of everyone involved. And uh, Brukhanov, uh, he sort of states that like, he was exceptionally swarthy and was often uh, uh, 
asked if, if he was like a Greek because he, and if you see pictures of him, he looks like, he looks like a med. He looks like a mena, mena baddie. So do we, do we know if he was an ethnic Uzbek or was he uh, a mix or was he potentially Jewish? I mean, there were, and some people don't realize this, but there was a somewhat sizable kind of Jewish presence in Uzbekistan during the Soviet Union and um, there was a, a mixing of Jews and Uzbeks and Jews and Russians that came out of Uzbekistan that, you know, would go around and build themselves as, oh, I'm, I'm an Uzbek and all this and that. Uh, as as, as far as I know, um, Brukhanov was not Jewish. Um, I think there was a, uh, there was a, a, an operator within control station four that was um, and I think he was in charge of the um, the water flow into the uh, reactor, but he didn't really have much to do with the uh, the safety test, which ended up leading to the explosion. And and this is well, as we get to the explosion, we'll sort of remark on that because it's sort of the you know is what uh, excuse me what Adam sort of said in the beginning. Um, and what Hank sort of added as well, just about the explosion, just about this entire story of Chernobyl. Um, it is a case study of Mercy, Murphy's Law. Um, everything that, and Murphy's Law being everything that goes wrong will, um, everything that happened at Chernobyl went wrong. And the result is uh, the disaster, the nuclear disaster. So um, this really is a case study of everything and everyone being incompetent and not knowing what to do sort of the standard soviet cover-up and secrecy uh which only exasperate exasperate and then do we know uh what exactly the power plant was supposed was it just a standard industrial power plant to supply power to all the factories and and all the the actual industry that had been placed sort of on the, the western edges of the soviet union Ukraine is very I, industrial, so it would yeah. make some sense to locate a power plant in Ukraine. Their, their aerospace industry and probably metallurgy industries is fairly uh, strong to this day. But aerospace in particular is a big one. And for aluminum smelting, you do need a particularly high amount of electricity to do that right. So it could have been for that. Uh, but just in general, Ukraine was, um, of the, the SSRs, it was fairly industrial. So not not this surprising to put yeah, it there this was built for kiev uh this was built um to to power kiev um yeah um and so if if you guys want to get into um the the chief sort of issue uh and and sort of the prime suspect uh and <laughs> you know which which would be the reactor which would be the uh the uh the fault of of much of this uh in a lot of ways well that i think um, that's that's an interesting point because and my knowledge is limited to my reading and watching basically one documentary on this uh prior to the show from the discovery channel uh what is it called it was called a uh, zero hour so the, the impression I got from that was that it, yes, the re reactor had some flaws in it and they, we can get into the details of that. Most of it, it seems stems from the fact that the sensors were not properly reporting some of the temperatures at the base of the reactor uh, and control rods and whatnot. But the, 
the biggest problem from what I could tell was just how the Soviet Union ran in a situation yes. like this. They had a guy who came in and I, I wasn't clear to me if he was basically on staff full time or he was assigned there on a temporary assignment. And I've also heard from the military that this was a military uh, task to push the reactor to its limits. So it seemed like he was kind of an outsider and he was bossing everybody around over their objections. Anatoly Dyatlov. Dyatlov, yeah, yeah. And so, so he, he was, was a symptom of the Soviet system, I would argue. And Yes. And he was third in charge uh, at the power station under Brukhanov, who was uh, director, and then Nikolai Fomin, who was his second. Dyatlov was okay. the third person in charge. Um, yeah, and he was, by all accounts, just a miserable human being. Um, he does have... Uh, and. and uh, the documentary that you watch uh, does mention that the uh, he was involved in an accident with a nuclear sub earlier right. in his career, right? Um, and it and that did turn him into a jaded man because there is um, the sort of the main theory of of the fallout of that accident. Although it wasn't his fault, um, his son, yeah, uh, I believe it was his infant son, died of leukemia um, soon soon after. So. The speculation is the radiation that he absorbed, he gave to his son and his son died. Yeah, that's interesting. And I I suppose that's possible. I'm no medical doctor, but in my other research of this, you know, the the incidence of cancer from Mm -hmm. people who were involved in the cleanup of Chernobyl um, obviously was higher, but their children uh, were not uh, prone to any higher rates of cancer compared to people who were not... um, exposed but of course that is also much later on and so the dust particles and contamination of clothing and maybe even the the lungs and then you breathe it out yeah if you are exposing that to a young person who's alive already as opposed to in a in a mother's womb somewhat protected that could make some sense that they could be exposed like that and yeah he probably bore some responsibility for that and according to this documentary it drove him uh, to work even harder, to, I guess, to prove to himself and others that he was also important. And so what I'm gathering then is that he was actually on staff there full-time. He was number three. And then my theory then is that uh, I think the chief engineer was asleep. And so he saw this as his chance for like a promotion. And so he was really just pushing pushing the limits. Yeah. So the issue, and this is, I guess we can get into the, the accident. Um, and then we sort of can circle back into sort of the design faults and sort of what spurned on the accident. So the accident occurred, and this is sort of one of the most ironic things about this entire tragedy is that the explosion occurred during a safety test. And as we sort of mm-hmm. go into the foundational issues with the reactor, um, on sort of on, on on a surface level, it's it's highly ironic that when you're, you know, charged with putting a, a safety test onto a reactor and then it, and then it explodes, clearly there's something wrong here. Well, um, I would call it a stress test. I mean, yes, yes, the safety test is, I guess, you're seeing if how safe it is under stress, but they really were trying to simulate a potential war scenario whereby the power generation of the plant itself was knocked out to the point where they couldn't run the power necessary to push through the cooling water. And so they have a backup 
say a bank of diesel generators but the problem is it takes them 40 45 seconds or something to boot up and so they were seeing what would happen if the main power went out and then seeing in the interim between that uh, ground zero moments and then the 40 seconds later of when the diesel generators kick in would be sufficient you're really gambling at that point when you got an, yes. a, a huge plant like that it's fully functional i mean it's actually kind of insane to actually do that in a, a huge large-scale plant like that where there's all these all these inherent risks and i don't know why they couldn't simulate that in, on a smaller safer scale that that's the question i would have but that's yeah. that's that's very true it's a good question and it's it's also worth noting now remember the accident took place in 1986 unit four was constructed and operational in 1983 so this goes back to sort of one of the again a a chief issue with this story and a a chief cause is soviet corruption uh brukhanov signed off the completion of the power station of all four reactors years before this safety test the sort of the fateful safety test now, the safety test was tried before, and to your point, Adam, it was never successful. But they, they threw caution to the wind and okayed, uh, you know, reactor number four. So when, when was the Israeli strike on, I think it was like Osiric or something in Iraq? That apparently was the impetus behind this because the Iraqi reactor was blown up and the Soviet top military brass apparently was paranoid about the u.s or somebody hitting them and so they wanted to test the the ability for these power stations to keep going i think and but it was that sort of close to 86 was that why they were like really scared all of a sudden uh i'm actually i'm not sure why i think uh because they i'm not sure why uh the impetus of um for the sort of the fateful test came about uh, I know they tried it two or three times beforehand. Um, mm-hmm. It might be uh, because of the uh, the nuclear reactor uh, meltdown in Iraq. It, it could just oh, sort of it, be it, that was just an airstrike. That that was not a meltdown. Oh, yeah, just to, to be clear, yeah, yeah. The, the Israelis they they flew in their uh, F-16s, I think, and and dropped some bombs. So <laughs> was not a not a reactor design flaw. It was a uh, it was a, a airspace defense flaw. Do we do we know? Uh, I mean, they they failed multiple tests in the run up to this particular one, but uh, given that it was constructed in the seventies, you know, um, uh, do we know if there was a long history of failed tests and problem mechanical problems? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, and and here's and here's sort of the the rub, right? So the and I'll I'll, I'll sort of get into it with my notes, but the RBMK reactor has a host of flaws. And because of typical sort of Soviet uh, paranoia and secrecy, none of those flaws were ever disclosed or ever talked to, or or the people working on the reactors were never told about the flaws in the first place. So uh, Adam uh, Higginbotham sort of uh, in, in, in his book, he refers to the RBMK reactor as a, a lesson or sort of a, a case study in Russia's uh, gigantomania, which I think is a, a, a wonderful phrase. Uh, <laughs> great term. And, yes, it's a great term. Um, and and 
this is sort of the core issue with the reactor itself is the size of the reactor. Well, if, if I could jump in real quick on that theme, uh, in watching that uh, Zero Hour uh, movie, it's sort of a reenactment, so I would, I would call it a, a docudrama. Uh, but it's funny because they, they kept kind of infusing, you know, like leading up to the disaster, they're trying to show you like slice of life, a little bit of illustration of what the normal daily life is like there. And there was, I think, uh, on the radio or maybe uh, after the disaster or something, uh, but there was just this kind of like background chatter. And they were saying, uh, there's a problem at Fire Station 342. And I'm like, this is so Soviet. You know, they have a an index that big that there's 342 on the list. And there's probably, I mean, I always thought it was funny, you know, when you like go to Los Angeles and like the street numbers are like in the tens of thousands, you know, because it's such a big place. But uh, I think this is sort of the same thing. It's like the entire country is run on a, a single database and everything has a number assigned to, assigned to it as opposed to just a quaint name in a, in a town, you know. <laughs> That's probably like the 342nd fire station just for that city. I know, for the Soviet, whole Soviet Union, there's got to be more, right? <laughs> yeah, there's so. got to be at least, you know, two, 300,000 fire stations for the whole Soviet Union. Like, you, there, There's actually, um, we're talking about like the gigantomania, I believe mm. that's what the, the, point, uh, the term is. Uh, the Soviets loved to do that when yes. they were starting to industrialize. So basically, when Stalin get, gets in, uh, and and Trotsky gets out with uh, with an ice pick, that's when the industrialization of the Soviet Union really begins. Because there's no one left to try and pitch this concept of like a gay agrarian whatever. And his whole plot is: we're going to build the biggest railroads the world's ever seen. We're going to build the biggest factories the world has ever seen. And the Soviets were looking at all these massive factories that Henry Ford had managed to put together, which Henry Ford ended up hating in his later years and refusing to even visit uh, because they were so grotesque and ridiculous. Um, and they basically wanted to do that, but then double the capacity, double the, the, the production capacity, uh, double the efficiency, and basically build millions of tractors every year for no reason other than to just to build millions of tractors. And uh, the, the most commonly cited one that we've talked about before would be Magnitogorsk, which was built actually by Americans um, for the Soviet Union. But there's a long history of, especially in the early industrial Soviet Union, where they tried to do the biggest and the best of everything that had ever been done. And the majority of it failed, and the majority of it was um, a huge waste of time and really not useful. And you can see this in World War II when the infrastructure basically falls apart when they actually need it at the scale that they had originally planned it for. And they're unable to produce goods and, and produce uh, have the industrial output that they need. They're unable to produce the amount of electricity they need. Their railroads completely fail. A lot of these old steam engines that they had built, the biggest and the best steam engines for trains, were completely useless. There was actually a good video from RT a couple of weeks ago, maybe, of uh, like going to some old Soviet rail yard. And all of this stuff, like the biggest and the best, is just sitting there rotting and rusting away. And then you realize that it's been doing that way before even the fall of the Soviet Union. 
so they built the biggest and the best of all this uh, random stuff that they never had. And then they completely left it to the wayside and, you know, went on to the next. I, I think big. part of that is just the, the drive for scale and yeah. they inevitably make mistakes. And so everybody is basically full of defective stuff as opposed to iterating, <laughs> you, you know, to, piecemeal yeah. and then improving and, and learning. But and this uh, is, yeah, well, and, and here's like the, the thing with, with like just sort of giant machines. And this is coming from like a guy with like a lit degree. All right. I'm not, I'm no engineer. I have no understanding of technical know-how, but I'm fully aware of the larger uh, a contraption you make, there's a greater possibility of, of critical errors taking place. Yeah. And like, it's just like, that's just like, you know, lesson, not even like 101. Like this is like grade school shit. That's common sense. You know? Yeah, it's common sense. So, yeah, it's 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 mind blowing. Um, it's that, also yeah. the Soviet system itself, because the yeah. uh, especially I think in the eighties, maybe in the seventies with the Brezhnev era, um, people just got very complacent, uh, for lack and of a more too. precise and very cynical. Yes, yeah. I think cynical is probably the best way to put it, because what would end up happening is officially you're not allowed to make money, right? You're just told what to do. You're given orders, you're given quotas, and you have to meet meet the quotas. Uh, but what the factory managers would end up doing is because obviously they're in a position of relative power, what they'd end up doing is they'd start making these uh, backdoor deals with other factory managers and effectively started creating a black market for goods. And so it would sort of be kind of like a contest who can strip the assets the fastest because you can't sell anything on the open market, but you can sell to these other managers. You know, if you need some extra bolts, you know, for your, your catwalk or uh, you need some more iron ore or whatever it is you're looking for, you start making deals and then you start thinking, well, maybe if I trade it to that guy over there, then I can get a little bit of extra. And, And meanwhile, you're basically stripping from your own factory in the process and your workers don't have any incentives, so they're kind of mailing it in and dragging their feet, and just everything just starts getting crummy, and they, you can't fire anybody, and so it's um, it's just a bad setup. I mean, there's there's not really good incentives for people to do a good job. And and actually, it's it's even worse than that because as bad as the sort of black market attitude, uh, which is which is bad uh, on its on itself because it's there's levels of corruption and and sort of shoddiness. Um, sort of baked into that conception of sort of an, a shadow economy. There's also the official economy to worry about as well, because a lot of the Soviet economy was sort of based on sort of surpassing or meeting sort of monthly quotas. So, and this is this factors into the construction of the Chernobyl power station, is that Brukhanov rushed a lot of the safety tests and sort of didn't really care, for instance, the the roofs um, of the reactor buildings were completed uh, without uh, with flammable material. Now they could have waited to get resistant fire resistant material, but they were running short on time, and Brukhanov wanted the financial bonuses with meeting his schedule. So, you know, they they you know uh, decide to use flammable material, which turned out to be quite a disaster when one of the reactor explodes. So it's, it's, there's, there's two levels of, of 
sort of shoddiness going on. There is sort of the official where everything is being rushed to meet sort of a, a arbitrary deadline. Uh, and then you have, as, as you said, Adam, sort of a shadow market emerging for, for corruption. So there's corruption on both levels, sort of officially and unofficially. I recently watched the HBO series and <clears throat> one of the main themes in the program is showing how it was that the late stage Soviet state apparatus was coping and their unwillingness to share factual information with the outside world. How much of that depicted is, is accurate? Uh, half and half. Um, in terms of, and I guess we can sort of go to the the uh, sort of the the after or the immediate aftermath. Um, the in terms of for those who've watched the miniseries, uh, you'll know sort of the meme of of three point six Rontgen, not great, not terrible. Uh, that was sort of the immediate official report, uh, and Brukhanov was in denial. Uh, Dyatlov, who was the man in charge of the room during the test, uh, was immediately aware of the scope. Um, so that part of the miniseries of him sort of lying um, isn't true, uh, but the head uh, of the um, the head of the power station, Brukhanov, was lying to his uh, successors, uh, or, or to his not successors, but uh, to his the higher ups and the Politburo. I, I have an article here that uh, from 1986, actually from the Associated Press, April 29th, 1986. Uh, the disaster initially happened on the 26th. So roughly three days later, here's the here's the uh, the headline: Odds of meltdown one in ten thousand years. Soviet officials safety precautions at Soviet nuclear power plants are so strict that quote the odds of a meltdown are one in ten thousand years, according to the Minister of Power and Electrification in the Ukraine, Vitaly uh, Skilyarov. Made the comment recently in Soviet Life, an English language magazine published by the Soviet Embassy and circulated in the United States under a reciprocal agreement between the two countries. The February issue's 10 page color spread on the nuclear power industry emphasized the safety of the country's nuclear plants, noting that nuclear plants are being built close to big cities and resort areas, Soviet Life correspondent Maxim asked Skilarov how safe are. Skilarov replied, the odds of a meltdown are 1 in 10,000 years. The plants have safe and reliable controls that are protected from any breakdown with three safety lines. The lines operate independently without duplicating one another. New equipment with higher reliability is being developed. So maybe th there's an aspect of this where they were definitely bullshitting everyone in the room. Because they, I think you're saying that Dietlov and probably others immediately recognized what this is a complete disaster. I just witnessed a complete disaster. And I'm sure the Soviet, by three days later, and the miniseries does a good job showing the timeline where very quickly the Soviet hierarchy is aware there's a big problem. Uh, their first thought is well, let's save face and let's hedge our bets and say that. Uh, there's actually not going to be a meltdown and we'll look like we're the, the smart ones. And, uh, when that be becomes, but they throw in that little line at the end, new equipment with higher reliability is being developed. 
very this is the, the common Soviet double of especially to outsiders of basically admitting how you screwed up in in a coded way maybe to avoid your own government going after you maybe to just toy with people it's never really clear why the soviets uh had this sort of about face with them it, there were different motivations at different times whether or not it was uh, uh sadistic or whether or not it was out of fear from some internal uh reciprocity but they're base he's basically trying to say yes there is a problem and the equipment failed but everything's totally fine our safety precautions are amazing uh there's two very very different things being said here and they obviously can't exist in the same universe at the same time uh, so I think that the miniseries does do a decent job of showing that the Soviets had maybe some initial apprehensions and, and initial ways of hiding exactly uh, to the outside world, at least, what they were doing. But uh, um, it probably is, as Titus is saying, not accurate in that the Soviets weren't immediately admitting internally that there was a big problem. Well, um, and probably the... the, the the Go the ahead. important the important bits of the miniseries um, and like the really grotesque stuff that if you watch it and like you're sort of repulsed by, um, you know the the fact that the Soviet publicly admitted internationally um, to the accident when a nuclear power uh, worker in Sweden uh, somehow got radiation from Chernobyl and was walking into work and the alarms. Uh, went off. Um, that that is true. Um, well, they the for, every of, power plant is going to run uh, Geiger counters to yes. look for potential leaks in their own plant, and all it was was basically the clouds of radioactive dust had landed on their plant. And so yes. at first they thought it was from their plant. Then they verified that no, it's actually from an external source. Then they sort of leaked that to the public press, and people started asking questions. And then basically Gorbachev had to admit that it was them. He, Yes, and and on sort of a more local, uh, sort of a, a local on the, on the sort of the topic on a more local issue uh, or, or sort of a local basis, um, the talk uh, it's sort of like the the immediate follow up meeting uh, with sort of the the city council. Um, the phone lines were cut uh, to the city of Pripyat uh, and barricades, and it was bar it barricaded off. So the citizens and and Pripyat was three kilometers away from the reactor. Um, people were not allowed to exit and they were not to leave. Uh, and of course they were eventually evacuated, I believe 36 hours after the explosion. Uh, but, but Nick, go ahead. You wanted to say something? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> one of the, another theme in the miniseries that was interesting, and this is interesting generally about the nuclear type disasters, because unlike, for example, I don't know, a levee breaking or a dam breaking or some, some other disaster that something like an evacuation it, it is something that people i mean ourselves include engineers and it's very it's immediately obvious in front of your face and that's something that's oh and that's part of what makes the show really well done especially with the soundtrack is making something that you can't see anything but it also makes it a lot and i know that there's regarding what happened to what level the U.S. government were lying about radiation level ocean. And it, it just, it's a, 
unique type of disaster. At one point in the program, uh, one of the characters says something to the effect is this has never happened before anywhere. It's true. It, I mean, Three Mile Island had happened in the 70s in the United States, but it was, uh, I believe it's classified as somewhat of a partial meltdown. I mean, the, the plant was not emitting the radioactivity into the environment like Chernobyl yeah. was. It the, was an internalized problem. Right. The, so the uniqueness of Chernobyl is the explosion. So meltdowns have occurred. Three Mile Island is a, is a great example. And uh, for quite a few years, uh, up until Chernobyl, was a huge propaganda victory for the USSR. They gloated about Three Mile Island all the time in their propaganda about how uh, Soviet reactors are incapable of not only uh, exploding, which was which was preposterous and absurd, <laughs> but even of a meltdown. So, Yeah, so their bombs are capable, but their power plants are not. Just uh, yes. FYI. <laughs> so, and and I just want to circle back very briefly because I think this is this is super important because I think um, we'll get into we've sort of already covered sort of the the shoddiness of the government bureaucracy, um, but I want to focus sort of on the reactor just for a moment here and just sort of go through sort of uh, some basic issues because it becomes very very apparent um, this the these these poor <laughs> reactor workers were dealing with. A nuclear bomb. Um, they just were, um, and it was it was very very dangerous. And if it didn't happen at Chernobyl, it would have happened somewhere else. And it actually did happen somewhere else, and it was covered up. So, the reactor, referred to uh, uh, as I said previously, is Gigantomania. So, the RBMK thousand what one thousand reactor is twenty times the size of Western generators at the time, okay? 20 times larger than anything that was produced in the West. Uh, the design was completed in 1968. The first one was built at the Schmermash installation um, outside of Leningrad. Became operational in 1973. The first issue with this reactor occurred in 1975, okay? Where the the AZ-5 button, which is the emergency brake button on the, this reactor, was was hit, and a partial meltdown occurred. Are you talking so about this design of re reactor, or are you talking about Chernobyl? Because like, Chernobyl was built after '76, from what I yes, yes, I'm talking about. Okay. I'm talking about the reactor, okay. uh, the first operational reactor, uh, the first operational RBMK RB reactor uh, was uh, operational in 1975 in Leningrad, and the first partial meltdown happened less than two years later. So uh, there are three glaring issues with the RBMK reactor. The first problem uh, are, derives from the positive void coefficient. Now, that's, that's nuclear engineer terminology. The sort of layman, in layman's terms, there's, there was a ingrained possible, a possibility of a runaway chain reaction uh, in the event uh, of the loss of coolant. And it was truly... Uh, only safe when running at full power. Now, we recall to our previous conversations uh, on the offset of this disaster that it was re that it was uh, that the reactor exploded during a stress test. So they were running; they were not running the reactor at full power. And you see what what 
yeah, derived. it wasn't even close. I mean, it was yes. full power is probably uh, I, I'd have to estimate it was probably like a thousand uh, megawatts, but they the safety floor was something like seven hundred. They put it at two hundred. Okay, yes. it, it was absolutely insane. And, and and this this leads us. Well, oh, I'm on. sorry. They, they also well, you're talking about the the coolant problem. They actually disabled the core coolant system while they were running the test. So not only were they not running it at full capacity, they they had didn't have any coolant. The the primary coolant system. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, it it. This is yeah. It's absolutely so... remarkably stupid. Yes. Yes. To do. So this brings us to this the. The second issue with this reactor, and which is the, the size of it. It's simply too large of a reactor. Um, and it's so big that while running the reactor, hot spots would occur within the reactor uh, to the point where the operators could not know for certain what was going on inside of the reactor they were running. There were blind spots. Um, and again, this was most dangerous during the startup and shutdown of the reactor. During those times, the instruments on their control panel were of no use. And uh, this was sort of official or rather unofficial policy, but the engineers had to rely on, quote unquote, their experience and their intuition when dealing with the reactor at that time, which sounds insane. But again, this is the Soviet Union. <laughs> so. The, the third and final problem, which is the catalyst of the explosion, is the AZ-5 button. Um, the emergency protection system relied on graphite modulators, which would rush back into the reactor to sever the connection, to sever the radioactivity. Now, despite... Uh, now, now this, this, there are two issues to this. First off, it was not designed as a full stop, although people believed that it was. It was actually a gradual stop, and this was never really uh, disclosed to the people working on these reactors. Secondly is the graphite tips of the, uh, the control rods. Um, the graphite tips, for a brief moment, would accelerate radioactivity instead of decreasing it. So again, in, in sort of a, a layman terms uh, a metaphor to this, at the most critical point for the reactor, the brake turned into the accelerator. And so again... Why did they put graphite on them? I, I don't understand. The, I didn't research it at all, but it's just a question that occurred to me when I was watching the documentary because they explained the control rods are made of boron, yes. which is sort of a... It's like a... Probably like a... A heavy duty lead lead stops the transmission of the neutrons that are used uh, in radioactive chain reactions. So if you put something in front of those neutrons, boom, you know you cool down your reactor. But why do they put graphite on the tips? I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe you know we, we don't know, but uh, I'm sure they had some reason for it. But obviously, in this edge case, it became a huge problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, and again, it's it's sort of it's it's escalating issues with a very sort of sensitive par part of or rather not sensitive just critical the most critical moment of this reactor had the most critical design flaws um now the soviet government the worst thing about all of this of course is that the soviet government was fully aware of these issues 
and an internal report by Nikiet, which I think was the Soviet nuclear engineer uh, uh, sort of bureaucracy. Uh, they issued a report in 1980, which listed nine major design failings and thermo uh, uh, nine major design failings of the reactor. No action was taken. The findings were not circulated to the engineers operating uh, these reactors. Uh, the only change occurred uh, within the operating manuals. Th those were just revised slightly. And that was it. That was all that was uh, changed after the Soviet government realized that there were major issues with this reactor. So do we want to uh, just go through some of the, the numbers, if that means anything? I mean, these numbers are so astronomically large, it's kind of hard to fathom. But when... I actually do have a, a quick point to make. Yeah. If I remember correctly from what I had read, graphite was utilized primar for... Uh, there was a cost reason, like most of them. <laughs> no. Was a, there was a particular <laughs> reason why that they needed graphite, and part of it was uh cost but also part of it was that they had not adequately uh experimented with graphite at the time industrial use of graphite in this capacity uh was sort of an unknown and they had not so performed the nuclear adequate. reactor was a perfect time to experiment with it yeah <laughs> <laughs> they, they basically the largest had, one from what i remember it had to do with cost and also a misunderstanding of the nuclear physics behind the use of graphite. Uh, now, part of the problem with any major electromechanical system as you increase in scale is that an immediate shutdown of power does not immediately stop the mechanical uh, aspects of this of a machine from uh, from you know it doesn't immediately stop them so you can see this with um, if if you shut down power to even a blender there will be maybe like a, a split second or two where the blade is still spinning if you shut down power to uh, or you take the keys out and you're driving at 60 miles an hour and you wonder why you still plow into a semi <laughs> take the keys out <laughs> I mean if, if you take if you kill the power to a 737 um, uh, Boeing airplane. The engines will continue to spin and will continue to generate their own sort of, uh, I mean, there's centripetal forces and things like that, but they'll continue to spin and operate, actually, just because of the underlying mechanics and because the scale has increased, and they'll probably go for 30 seconds to a minute, depends on a lot of factors. When you're talking about a machine this There are big, no brakes on this. When you're, when you're talking about a machine this large, of course, you know, an immediate shutdown is not going to immediately work. Now, you can attribute this to uh, very young engineers who are probably nervous and haven't, you know, had a lot of real world experience with engineering. And it's not just common sense to them where there is no way that this immediate, utterly immediately shut down this massive engine that we have running this nuclear power generator there's no way that's going to happen there's no way it's going to be an immediate kill switch that just that doesn't exist um anything that is electromechanical at, at any large scale there is no immediate kill switch so they probably had no real clue that this wouldn't either they didn't really understand that it would not immediately kill it 
or they panicked and had no idea uh, what to do and other than, well, our training has said, if this situation occurs, slam this button as hard as you can, and everything should be okay. Uh, and furthermore, they probably had never been given training, and it was also made clear, I think, in a lot of books and miniseries as well, that uh, these engineers didn't have knowledge of this prior incident that you're talking about, Titus. They didn't. They didn't. This was not taught to them. Yes. That, so that this flaw existed, and that this that there was actually a, like a, in a, a lot of engineering work, you'll have use cases and test cases, and American engineering is actually uh, still pretty good in the education part because. You study a lot of failures, and it's, you you understand exactly why and how certain things fail, and, and what you could have you know how this could have been prevented, and that wasn't occurring with, right. with the education of these engineers. Right. So the the compounding sort of fundamental issue of the Chernobyl disaster is Soviet secrecy and the inexperience and ignorance of the engineers while they were running the tests. They did not have the job experience. Uh, Topnanov, uh, who was one of the uh, engineers who was running the reactor uh, at the night of the explosion, ha uh, I think was 26 years old, and he had four months on the job. Just got out of, uh, he, he was just a, a recent graduate, and he landed this job, and he had no idea what he was doing. Um, and there was no possible way he could have known, because all of the most important facets of the issues of the reactor were withheld from everyone, um, including uh, Dyatlov, uh, who was in charge of uh, Reactor 4 during the test. So they were able to, their inexperience pushed the reactor to make the final flaw. But in their incompetence, the problem was they believed that there was a failsafe, which was the AZ-5 button. And because of the secrecy of the Soviet state, they were not aware that the AZ-5 button, AZ-5 button, at the time, at the, the most critical point, which is the point that they were, was the, the, the point in which they had led their reactor up to, would fail them. So it, it's, a, it's a compounding issues, uh, a, a, a layering of just astronomical fuck-ups and mistakes and secrecy. I wanted to just throw in real quick uh, <clears throat> some numbers for comparison. The explosion that occurred, which um, I want to sort of give my best understanding of what was happening uh, to compare and contrast with other types of explosions, including nuclear nuclear bombs. But basically this system is, is a big steam power plant. And you can run steam turbines using any heat source, but you need a source for that heat generation uh, because you need to create a pressure differential between the input water. You typically use water. You could use something else, I suppose, but a liquid that converts to, to a less dense form uh, with, in the case of water, water converts to steam when you boil it, uh, creates a large amount of pressure. So, and that's that pressure will push the blades of a turbine and that turbine has a bunch of magnets on it, and there's a stator coil around it that generates the electricity. So 
in order to generate all that heat to boil the water, you need something that's very hot. And coal can do that. You could burn coal. Uh, that requires, obviously, a supply chain of coal uh, and the cost and incumbent in obtaining it. Uh, there's pollution involved. You can also use natural gas. You can burn anything, basically. Uh, but basically, the most common ways of doing a steam generator is uh, coal, uh, natural gas, and nuclear. Uh, so the nuclear reactor way of doing it is you have a chain reaction using fuel rods, which are made of uranium. I don't think they use uh, plutonium in most reactors, but there are ways of using that. Those are basically uh, recycled uh, spent fuel rods that have been, I forget the term for it, but basically you have to run it through a re-enrichment process. And so these rods, they're not typical uranium. Uranium is naturally occurring. You can mine it. You can have rocks of it. And actually it's not very harmful because it's not concentrated. But you have to enrich it to the point where the, the initial neutron that kicks off the chain reaction of splitting other atoms uh, to then spit out more neutrons that create this whole, you can imagine like sort of an, a tree. So starting at the base of the tree, uh, you shoot a neutron and then you, you hit a single initial catalyst uh, atom of uranium. U U238, I think, is the uh, isotope. Uh, so then it splits. It shoots off more neutrons that hit other uranium atoms. Then those bust apart. And then in doing so, you, you release tons of energy. So this gets really out of control. And in the case of a nuclear bomb, that's what you want. And it basically burns up in an instant flash. All your fuel is spent up, and you have this gigantic fireball. That actually is less dangerous in the aftermath than what happened in this thing because there's a lot less fuel. Uh, the, the fuel is burnt up almost instantly in the case of a bomb. But in a reactor, what you're doing is you're kind of slowly exploding it all because obviously if it blew up, the whole power plant would explode. So you have to do it very slowly. But in order to control that reaction, you have to put in these. So first the uranium is in things called fuel rods and then the control mechanism is the control rod. So they're all sort of these big long sticks in these in this column. Uh, and then you put in various amounts of uh, restrictive material that stops those neutrons from floating around. Uh, and that's typically done with control rods that are made, in this case, of boron. You could use lead, I guess, anything that would just absorb that neutron and stop it from going to the other fuel rods. So that's how you sort of regulate how much power is being generated at a time. But if you don't do it right, then you basically turn into kind of like a messy bomb. But it's, it's worse because you don't burn it all up. In this case, you're, because you're running water through it and you got steam, you have all these high pressures that you have uh, to deal with. And so, again, the fuel is not being burned up all at once. And when there is an explosion, the explosion in this case was basically the steam. The steam was, was rupturing the top of the, the reactor. And so when that thing went, the, all the water rushed out and it blew the roof off. And then all those fuel rods are cracked. They melted. They, they sort of vaporized. Some of the dust was uh, going into the steam. That created this huge radioactive cloud that blew up all into the sky and then drifted over all of almost all of Europe, most of Northern Europe, I think, and then parts of Central and Southern Europe. 
so well, the reason it's worse is because that that stuff that got blown out wasn't spent. It's highly enriched, but it's going to persist for thousands of years. And so it's basically just sitting there on a, on a slow kill stream uh, that you can't get rid of. That's why it's worse. And I just... Actually, uh, last thing I'll say numerically uh, the amount of fuel that was thrown up was basically 50 tons uh, of the fuel itself and then the graphite control rods were also radioactive at that point that was 700 tons so the 50 tons is 10 times is her uh, the amount of Hiroshima and then when you go to 700 um, you're talking more than 100 times so hundred times worse than the bomb. And then the stuff is not even, uh, in terms of just the amount of fuel, raw fuel. And then again, the stuff persists. So that's why it's horrible. So I actually managed to pull up a, a very technical paper, um, on the graphite problem. And, uh, I'll just read this section here. Uh, there was this, this, another significant shortage was also in the design of the absorbers of the RBMK reactor. These absorbers had special graphite displacers in the length of 4.5 meters. By withdrawal of these absorbers up to their extreme top position above the core, the midpoint of each displacer is at the midpoint of the core. Because their length is less than the height of the core, the water columns in the height of 1.25 meters are formed below and above the displacers. On moving down, on moving down of absorbers into the core, the displacers displace water columns from the lower part of the core. So they're actually starting to push away the water from the core where it needs to be. Uh, thus, inserting of absorbers from their extreme top position induces a positive reactivity into the core because graphite absorbs neutrons much less than water. This effect of absorber displacers is shown in this figure. It was known by operators of RBMKs. They named it the Enron's effect. And specialists named it the Enron's effect as the positive reactivity surge. It was not fully understood by them because it appeared occasionally and only by some neutron distributions in the core. For example, in one document of the chief designer organization, it was told that the positive reactivity surge could appear only in case of neutron fields disturbed downwards. This statement was wrong. It is known that before pressing the AZ5 button, the neutron field was distorted upwards and not downwards. This fact says about mis this, fa this misunderstanding by the chief designer of the organization, the real nature of the positive reactivity surge caused by inserting the absorbers from their extreme top position. So they were using graphite because it appeared to be working. Uh, basically, they misunderstood why they thought it was working. Um, and that also had to do with what you mentioned earlier. The sensors wouldn't always report accurately. So sometimes there would be a great deal of, of reactivity and it would report as zero reactivity going on. Um, so they actually thought that these graphite rods were doing a very good job. And again, they hadn't really fully experimented with graphite. There was not a great QA system. There hadn't been extensive materials testing uh, and so on. There was just an incentive to keep building and they thought it was working, uh, but they totally misunderstood what it was actually doing. And it only took a very particular incident for it to you know, actually uh, work 
as in, as the way it was going engineered to do, not the way it was intended. Um, but it was also cheap. Uh, again, there was a there was a cost mechanism to why the Soviet Union was using graphite. Well, pencils are made of graphite, so right. I, I mean, they got to be cheap, right? Most Western uh, systems by this point were moving beyond the use of graphite in this respect, um, mostly because they had found that these issues persisted, and that they, you know, had felt as though that there were too many engineering problems that could occur from utilization of graphite. Especially if if you hadn't adequately measured your control rods, which appears to also have happened, which is pretty shocking. Um, but th there were too many problems, and a lot of the West and just people around the world seemed to understand that this was a, an, an issue. But the Soviets refused to acknowledge that and continued to utilize graphite because it had not yet failed and they were under the assumption that the engineering even though they didn't it even says they didn't understand these radioactive effects uh and they seemed to be sort of anomalous they just thought it was a uh an unknown byproduct but that everything else is working smoothly so it was a great deal of incompetence and also just lack of qa work in the use of this material and it just hadn't failed yet or hadn't failed as spectacularly yet and uh, you know they they really had no clue what they were actually doing when they were inserting these graphite rods into the you know near the core into the water. Um, so I guess we can we can kind of just jump to really quick Titus the um, immediately kind of what happens as it explodes and sort of the response to it. Uh, my my understanding is that once it exploded. The, uh, the the open the core itself was basically open to the world and was no longer covered and was burning off everything around it. Right. So, uh, and the the HBO miniseries does a really good job in the final episode. Um, there's a lot of there's there's the only sort of fictional issues with the the final episode of uh, the miniseries is sort of the trial uh, where sort of the main characters are sort of you know walking up the audience uh through sort of what happened uh it's a the what actually what they are explaining is true the main characters uh were not at the trial however um so just to to, to work on that though but the sort of run-up uh to the explosion uh which the miniseries sort of goes into and it goes into it on a on a uh uh the, sort of the chemistry of it and sort of the reactor's flaws it does it perfectly um and and in a way that it isn't too confusing and you actually sort of get to understand what the reactor is supposed to do and what the reactor happens when when people start messing up so i have uh, in terms of the immediate aftermath i have a, a quote from one of the engineers at uh at unit four uh, sasha yuvashenko there's a quote from him there was a heavy thud a couple of seconds later, I felt a wave come through the room. The thick concrete walls were bent like, bent like rubber. I thought war had broken out. We started to look for Kodemshuk, who was uh, in charge of the water pumps, and he had been vaporized. Steam wrapped around everything. It was dark, and there was a horrible hissing noise. There was no ceiling, only sky, a sky full of stars. So the explosion 
of the RBMK reactor exploded the top, sort of where all the graphite modulators that we've been discussing, they were sort of held, held onto by this giant steel sort of slab above the reactor. The pressure builds up and this giant multi-toned lid explodes. It shoots through the roof of uh, that was housed in the reactor and into the atmosphere. Um, that is sort of the immediate and sort of shocking aftermath of the of the explosion. Um, in terms of the immediate aftermath, the firefighters stationed uh, at the power plant were called in. Uh, they sort of they weren't told what the issue was uh, originally. I think the uh, original call, uh, which you can hear on YouTube, and and they actually do play in the miniseries. Uh, does not mention a reactor explosion at reactors. It, it mentions only a fire on the roof. That is it. So they were not the fire. The, the first responders were not aware of what they were walking into at all. Um, there is uh, 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 there are instances um, of uh, one of the firefighters uh, looking into the core and immediately going blind. Um, the, the sort of the the horror and nightmare of 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 the immediate situation is um it's it's kind of impossible to describe uh anatoly dyatlov who was the man in charge of the safety test uh when he saw what happened uh in, in, from what i've read uh he his only uh thought was of of dante uh, of, of Dante's Inferno. He, he had read in the Inferno and that is the image that came to mind. So that's sort of the image that should be in the audience uh, listeners' minds as well. This is, this is just hell, hell on earth. Um, in terms of, of, radi uh, of radiation output, um, and this sort of goes back to uh, the, the miniseries as well, what would have been initially reported was three point cent 3.6 rotkins per hour, which is uh, an issue. Um, and it's actually above sort of the yearly dose of radiation plant workers were supposed to uh, absorb. Um, but the actual reading uh, was 30,000. So <laughs> yeah, this is, <laughs> it's, it's, it's obscene. Um, and that's a that's a factor of error of about ten thousand. Yes, yes, it's a factor of error of ten thousand, and they got three point six. And this is this part of the the miniseries is true. They got the 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 initial reading of three point six was received and reported because that was the maximum uh, on the decimeters. So that was the maximum number of the tools that they were using, and they just reported. What the uh, the reader said. It couldn't have been that stupid, though. I mean, this this was. <laughs> come on. Uh, the, well, they, fu funny Sovietism in that vein. Uh, according to the well, little docudrama I saw, the radio is telling the townspeople, um, uh, "Don't worry, but there is a problem. We have a quote unsatisfactory radioactive situation at hand." Just lightly. love how they put that. 
Well, so yeah. the, the issue comes with reporting and sort of the structure of command at, at Chernobyl, right? So people on the ground, people, because again, this is, this explosion happened at reactor four. There are three other reactors still operational, fully operational. So on the ground, the situation becomes apparent to everyone who is working at the station. Yeah, they kept running those for 15 more years. <laughs> yes, they did. It's amazing. <laughs> yes. So it became apparent to the people on the ground that the situation was not what the officials were reporting. The problem was they couldn't go above Brukhanov. Now, Brukhanov, for some reason, just sort of, and, and you know, possibly just could be trauma because this is a, a young up and coming, you know, star on, on the Soviet nuclear scene. And, you know, he was in, he was in a position for a promotion and sort of the trauma and shock of his, his child. Uh, Cause he, he built Chernobyl. He built the power plant. His child exploding might've been too much for him. And, and he, he might've just been shock and denial. Um, it's, it's impossible to, determine his you know uh what he was what he was thinking or feeling um but it might have been that because the official what he was telling his superiors was uh, it's just 3.6 it's not the reactor it's a water coolant tank don't worry we have it under control uh despite everyone else knowing under him that there's there's a a legitimate crisis at hand so what happens next? So Nick, do you want to talk about the liquidation? Well, I wanted yes, I wanted to talk about the, how the cleanup took place. Uh, they obviously had to mobilize military bio robots. Did you bio robot is human robots. <laughs> So just humans, human <laughs> slaves. I mean, eight hundred thousand people. I think. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say eight, eight like eight hundred thousand people. Of, it's yeah. mind-boggling. That, I yeah, mean, how, how yeah, what yeah, other I mean, country could do that other than a communist country? Well, it's interesting. There, there's something that Titus brought up that's interesting. In that the Soviet Union couldn't convince people in you know more experienced engineers and so on across the country to like pick up their families and move, and they were like, you know, I don't really want to. move. Okay, well, yeah. See you later, uh, buddy. Slav. Okay. Fifty years prior, or even forty years prior, the Soviet Union would have walked up to that guy and his family and said, "We need you to move to this town." <laughs> and if you said anything other than "Yes, when do I leave?" you would be shot or thrown Die. in prison, or your life would be ruined. So it shows like the real decline of the old Soviet power dynamic in that when we tell you to jump you don't even say how high you just start jumping until we tell you to stop and for them to finally kind of resurrect in in the face of an immediate crisis which is when they i think they realized like oh that old system we had of telling people to do it and then they do it worked really well for us uh, where they have to tell 800,000 people, show up. They had to tell miners and construction crews and military officers and everyone in between, we need you to show up immediately and do the job we tell you to do no matter what the risks are. Uh, you know, Towards the end of the Soviet Union, you can really see them trying their best to resurrect 
the old Stalinist power dynamic with their population. And that's really when their population sort of revolts because they don't, they thought that they had moved past that. And suddenly when things aren't going so well for the regime, you know, they try and resurrect this social contract that everyone had thought was behind them. And that wasn't really the reality of the Soviet Union anymore. Um, but they, you know, in order to clean this up, they, the first thing they try and do is they take helicopters and they pour a bunch, a mix of sand, lead, boron, and some other stuff on top of a burning reactor uh, in order to try and snuff it out. And yeah, and in the photographs that some of the photographers who are assigned to this, and this is like classified stuff, of course, but KGB type type photographers. But the photographers who were taking these photographs, the film itself was so heavily uh, radioactively exposed that the film was so blurred, uh, blurred out that you could sort of make out the outline of what he's trying to take a picture of, but you could tell that there's a huge amount of radiation pouring out of that thing. Right. And so they, they meet it. It's the same basic principle as, you know, slamming a blanket on top of like a, a small fire in, in your house or whatever. Uh, but it doesn't work that way. Uh, it's burning way too hot and they don't understand how it's burning that hot. And the reactor immediately starts to just melt all of this material that they're pouring on it. And then there's a, correct me if I'm wrong, Titus, but uh, they effectively create uh, some kind of molten mixture, which is what the reactor was already doing, was turning its surrounding material into molten slime, a mix of concrete, metal, and nuclear fuel. I think it's called corium. Yeah, yeah ra radioactive lava. Yeah, so... <laughs> The, the, the I like Hans's way of putting it, a slime, <laughs> radioactive. Slime. <laughs> so, right. So they, they pour, they use uh, helicopter sorties to put out the immediate fire. However, the coating that they put on the melt, uh, they put on the reactor increases the heat, which turns into a meltdown, which creates lava, which begins eating through the concrete safety slab, separating the reactor from groundwater. So there's there's <laughs> there's immediately once once oh. one issue is solved, an immediate issue, which is far more dramatic, uh, begins to, to to take place. Now, where Eastern Europe is uh, very fortunate that two things did not happen. The there was not a secondary explosion, which there was a possibility, um, and this is one of the reasons why um, sort of a, a compounded issue. And the immediate aftermath of the fire uh, and the explosion was that the firefighters kept pumping water into the core. Now, the water that would hit the core would be uh, would immediately vaporize because it's too hot, so that wouldn't affect anything. But the water that wasn't hitting the core ended up sort of pooling around sort of the bottom layer of the facility. Now, if the lava hit that bottom layer you would have had explosion more or less an explosion a, a, a chemical a, a, an atomic bomb type scenario which would have not only shot all of the radiation of reactor 4 into the atmosphere but the three other reactors that yeah. were still operational I, so, I, i'd call that a dirty bomb because again the the atomic bomb technically it, it burns all the fuel all at once and that's what that massive release of energy is in this case you're you're basically dealing with steam explosions right. that rip apart the 
the container uh, vessels of these reactors that then expose the atmosphere to all this horrible radioactive uh, material. Uh, but it's really, a, it's a dirty bomb. I mean, that, that's what yeah. it is. A um, huge yeah. one, by the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of, of several megatons. And um, if that occurred, um, Ukraine, Belarus, uh, entire, what, you know, after, after the fall of the, the Soviet Union, uh, entire countries would have been uninhabitable. Yeah, for the Warsaw Pact <laughs> yeah. disappeared. Yeah, it, yeah, it would have been. The whole time was basically the end of the Warsaw Pact. I mean, that's one way to get out of that alliance. If that yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, it's like, sorry, guys. Uh, you know, you you had your chance. We don't really recognize your leadership anymore. <laughs> We're all growing four four or five arms. <laughs> you, you you want to deal with us? We'll we'll fight you off. I mean, you know, it's a real evolution of the Soviet whacking tactic. You go from ice picks to just blowing up whole countries. And yes. <laughs> But as uh, as we are, you know, uh, as as Eastern Europe still exists, that did not happen. They they were able to find uh, three uh, plant workers who were able to uh, go in uh, to these flooded areas and uh, turn on sort of manually release valves, which sort of got rid of that sort of pooling water. Um, the second issue was the possibility of the lava melting through the safety core. And this is where the miners come in. Um, Soviet uh, Union were, was able to order around 400 miners uh, to dig underneath this core that was in full meltdown. Uh, and their plan was uh, to use all of the liquid nitrogen in the Soviet Union uh, and create a, a coolant, uh, which would cool the lava uh, that was melting towards it uh, to stop it from melting through. Um, they, they luckily never had to go through, uh, that in terms of, of building, uh, uh and, and constructing, uh, a sort of a liquid nitrogen device, um, because the, the, the lava did halt itself, uh, through, uh, not through, but, uh, the concrete, uh, sort of safety, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sort of jumbling my words here for a second. I do apologize. The, the the bathtub the concrete, underneath it. Yes, yes. The the safety containment did it did hold. So there was no poisoning of the Pripyat, which was a, a very distinct possibility. Yeah, and so these uh, bio robo robots, as Nick was mentioning, uh, they really were just conscripts. And from the pictures that I remember seeing, they were wearing almost nothing. Uh, honestly, that would do much. I mean, if you go to the dentist's office and you get an x-ray, you've got like a flak jacket on. The thing is like lead plates, but you're talking 800,000 people. Of course, they're rotating these guys, so obviously they're not all there at once, but the resources, it's it, it would seem, were uh, not available to properly protect these guys. And the pictures that I recall were just them wearing um, sort of like anti-chemical warfare suits, but it was probably designed, you know, for nuclear war, but a lot of rubber, in other words. So, yeah, so there, there are the, the liquidators. Uh, the liquidators is a term that describes everyone working within the cleanup. So that goes for people who were demolishing villages, who were working entire forests uh, of the sort of pollution zone, uh, ex, uh, removing uh, villagers and, and all that stuff. 
killing uh, uh, the wildlife because they had to cull the entire animal population within the zone. The bio robots are the workers who had to clean the uh, graphite, the, the sort of fallen uh, radioactive graphite chunks from reactor four off of the roof of reactor three um, in order for them to put the sarcophagus over reactor four to sort of, you know, uh, stop the radiation from continuing to leak into the atmosphere. And in terms of the bio robots, because the, the pictures of uh, Adam, you're, you're, you're spot on. Um, the lead shielding that they used, that, that was found on, on site. So there are stories of these guys who are, are charged to pick up radioactive graphite from a reactor, from the core of a reactor with shovels and push them off the roof. And the only protection that they, that the Soviet government afforded them were those rubber suits. The lead shielding that they used, and, and you can see it on the pictures, they acquired at Chernobyl. They were ripping apart lead from the facility to strap onto their bodies. Yeah, that's a real shame. I mean, I, I, I my, my heart goes out to these guys. I mean, we'll talk about a thankless, I mean, well, they got thanks, I'm sure, but just a horrible, hellish job. I mean, you, you know your life is is truly being curtailed at that moment. Um, and just the psycho psychological horror of that and just being aware of it while you're up there, it's got to be awful. I mean, what do they use? Prisoners? I mean, like, who are they choosing to send here? This is this is a real tough decision you got to make. And and that, that, that brings up the other question. It's like, well, what do you do? I mean, you got to do something. And so yeah. you, you, you have to recognize the courage of these guys and nothing else. Craig, there's an Craig. aspect of the of the minor story that I had read was actually in in the series was inaccurate in that uh, one of their jobs it's framed as though they kind of uh, they get this heat exchanger underground near the reactor uh, just in time to you know basically remove heat from the surrounding uh, soil but the reactor had already cooled off enough that yes. they didn't need it by the time they had actually finished. But this was some sort of like, in reality, it was a safety measure. They basically, you know, in the cleanup and once they accidentally create uh, slime, they effectively construct a series of fail-safes. One is the heat exchanger. So that was basically done with the intention of if it's to heat up again, we have a way of cooling it off. But they didn't actually get it done before the reactor sort of cooled off on its own. Uh, that that's like a very slight technical inaccuracy, and you can kind of forgive them for that. But um, it does show that the actual scientific and engineering know-how is assembled in the aftermath. You know, hundreds of scientists and engineers with actual decades of experience are called to show up and help, and they're the ones who immediately say, "Okay, we need about six different fail-safes, depending on which scenario occurs." In order to prevent, you know, basically an ex a secondary explosion is what they were really trying to prevent. But also a way in case we accidentally reintroduce some kind of element to uh, to this reactor, in which it could, in case, uh, sort of induce another positive reactivity charge, 
they needed a way to also account for that because they didn't fully understand the nuclear physics of, of what was going on. But the engineers and scientists there were smart enough to say, well, if we're going to just start throwing shit against the wall, we need to have fail-safes for that. We need to immediately be able to tunnel away heat. We need to be able to immediately put out as much of a new fire as possible. We need to contain the spread of uh, this lava down to the slime below in the coolant, uh, and, you know, et cetera. They constructed a very safe way of actually just throwing problem, you know, throwing solutions against the wall, which is what the Soviet hierarchy was demanding, that they just start doing whatever they can. And they were smart enough to realize that that could probably make things uh, much, much worse than they already were. Yeah. I mean, that that's, that's the creativity you were required to display in a situation like that, where you're basically living in a dictatorship i mean you've got to well, and, and that's like, and that's why engineers today specifically especially in the west but in general are mostly talk you know about failures and, and fail-safe modes and constructing uh support systems that is a huge part of engineering especially in the modern world and it's for reasons like this uh you know and, and it applies to just about everything it, it applies to uh preventing dam collapses like what happened at uh, allentown pennsylvania around the turn of the century when they didn't adequately build enough support systems while they were trying to repair certain damaged parts of the dam and the dam exploded basically killed a bunch of people uh there's all there's all kinds of you know aspects how that take this stuff into account or they just weren't doing that in the uh, because I think they were just trying to create as many engineers as possible just for the sake of having engineers and having power plants to build more engineers and power plants. It's uh, the Craig Maislin, who is the showrunner of uh, the HBO miniseries, said, and I think it's, it's, it's on point, Chernobyl could only uh, happen in the Soviet Union and it could only be um, and to just sort of finish a uh, point on the sort of the bio robots, um, sort of the, the, the removal of the graphite um, in the areas that they use sort of uh, uh, bulldozers and sort of moon rovers to sort of, you know, limit, uh, limit human interaction with the radiation, um, they would. Uh, and, and two areas that they, that Two of the three areas that they that they used that they had to uh, excavate or, or get rid of, clean up the graphite. They did use sort of uh, automated machines. Um, the third part of the roof, however, was too radioactive for machines to work, um, and that is where the the bio robots came in, the the, the human um, graphite removers. And is that the because Soviet, the the radio signals were being interfered with from the radiation? Uh, the radiation was so strong it would actually kill the electronics <sighs> in the machine. That's, so that's I, amazing. I, yeah. That I, actually I have, happened at Fukushima when they initially yeah. sent yeah. in a lot of those machines. It was immediately frying the circuitry, and the machine would last about I, three I, seconds after a certain point, and then just die. So I, I have some uh, some sort of a, a readout of the, uh, and they were actually uh, named. Uh, like women uh, by sort of the general in charge uh, of the cleanup uh, operation. So the first part was uh, Katya uh, and that was emitting 1000 Rotkin per hour. 
So uh, two hours of exposure at that area would be fatal. The second part uh, would be Nina, which uh, was emitting 2,000 Rontgen per hour. So it would be an hour until fatality. The final uh, area, and this is the area where they had to use humans to remove the graphite, was named Masha. And the radiation is 12,000 Rontgen per hour. Uh, that is a fatal dose in three minutes. Uh, so these, these bio robots were given 40 to 60 seconds per man to run up onto the roof, push some graphite off of it, and then run out. Uh, and it well, took... They're being delivered by helicopter, I assume. They're, they can't run up the building that fast, right? Well, well, no, no um, uh, they, they, walk, they would walk up uh, to the roof, and then the, the rush, the, the 60 seconds would be at the time they, they stepped foot onto the roof until the time they got off of the roof. Oh, so that was sort of the, the area that was timed for them. Um, and they were only allowed 40 to 60 seconds, and uh, it took three to 5,000 men. Uh, to to clear that area. Wow. Why why do they have to move this stuff again? It's it's on the roof, and so they're trying to clear the roof so they could build a sarcophagus. You said. Yes. Yeah, so but, yeah, yeah, it was it was basically uh, they had to more or less put all the radiation in, back into sort of the exploded reactor. For oh, okay. The so just to just work. get it close closer to the rest of the junk. So just to concentrate it, so it's not spread right. out. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now you were saying initially also the mixtures of uh, containment material they were dumping on there was basically melting. And I don't know at what point they stopped doing that, but did it start working temporarily? And then I know eventually they, they had these pre preconstructed concrete slabs that sort of look like tilt up walls that you'll see at big box stores these days. But that's that's ultimately what they ended up doing, and that that I shouldn't say ultimately that was sort of an interim medium term solution too because it had an expected thirty year life. But when did they start doing that, and and how were they able to transition from that failed initial plan to the sarcophagus? So I think uh, the reactor basically uh, worked itself out in the sense that it cooled down on its own for the most part, and the fire slowly went out. Uh, their efforts to coat it in this material, this mix of materials was not working. They would have needed to have done it at a scale that was not possible, at a rate that was not possible, I believe, to put it out in the way that they wanted. Uh, it was simply burning too hot, and it was giving off too much radiation uh, for any meaningful scale uh, to be accomplished. So it was only being done, uh, in, you know, again, in a certain way in which it would, it would not immediately smother uh, the fire and it would not immediately start to cool and suffocate the reactor. The reactor would basically uh, just continue to burn through it. In the same way that the amount of water that they were pouring on it was basically ineffective, you would need to empty an entire lake at the same time, at uh, something like that, in a single second on the reactor to probably have the desired effect of cooling it off or even putting out the fire. It's not not possible. You can't, you know, it's just not humanly possible. It's not mechanically possible to do such a thing. 
so I, from my understanding, it simply just burned itself out over time before they had even really constructed any of these fail-safe systems to try and do that faster. Once they realized that the mix, the, the sand and material mixture uh, was not only not working, but was uh, having a very deleterious side effect. You know, as you say that, it, it, it brings to mind memories of seeing footage of like Kilauea in Hawaii. And when you actually watch, because Hawaii is an island, obviously, and when you watch that lava that is just flowing out of that open sore of the earth hit the ocean, and the ocean is probably the biggest heat sink that we know of on the planet. And the stuff is still pushing through. I mean, it's still, you can still see orange. And so just imagine, and that's, uh, the lava is that comes from the middle of the earth is uh, originating from radioactive decay. So it is somewhat related to what the issue we're talking about. And if you can't even cool it off with the ocean, I mean, think of how hard it is to try to do it with helicopter buckets. Or fire trucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they they really misunderstood. So the, the most interesting thing about the reactor it failing was that they it really revolutionized. Uh, and this is one of the things that uh, I guess silver linings, if you can call it that, that comes out of Chernobyl is that it really forced not only the Soviet Union but the whole world to uh, reevaluate what exactly a burning reactor looks like and how you can actually uh, stop it. And it turns out that if it's sufficiently large enough and it's giving off a sufficient amount of radiation and heat, it is physically impossible to even uh, damper its own internal energy and its own internal combustion. You simply have to let it burn itself out. Well, in, the, in, in this particular design in particular, and that's one of the things that people debate about nuclear technology in general today is that the newer reactor designs are supposed to address this very problem. Uh, the thorium reactors or the pellet reactors, they're supposed to be much safer. And uh, I'm not privy to exactly how they work, but that that is the design flaw that I think they're trying to solve is what you're talking about. Yeah, it, it's it's something that gives off so much of its own energy and eats away at itself. It's it's actually in a way creating its it's like its own fusion byproduct by melting away at itself and everything around it. And the amount of energy it's giving off is simply not uh, anything that could be physically stopped with you know even future human technology. Um, I don't think if the if that reactor were to blow up now, for whatever reason, we had our modern technology, uh, and I don't think that any of the even with an increased scale and volume with our technology now, it could with those early methods that they were attempting to use. I don't think it could be done even then. I, I really do not see any logical way in which you could have completely stamped out the fire in a way that they thought they were going to. They were under the impression they were going to nix this thing within like 10 hours and it was going to be smothered and that they could just deal with the radio, with the radioactivity. I, I'm honestly surprised they didn't drop a, a nuclear bomb on top of it because, you know, in some ways that would have uh, maybe cleaned it up. I mean, it would have made them a huge mess. But I remember during the Deepwater Horizon disaster off the Gulf of, uh, well, it was, 
It was in the Gulf of Mexico. I can't remember exactly where it was nearest, uh, but whether Texas or Louisiana. 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 Okay, so I remember when that was happening. You know, Russia today is, of course, you know, uh, enjoying themselves a little bit, and so uh, they're, they're reporting on it gleefully. But the Russian scientist, government, scientific community, or whoever it was, I remember them proposing uh, in order to cap off that uh, leaking oil well on the bottom of the ocean, uh, just detonating some tactical nuclear weapons to seal it off and i'm like hmm maybe it'll work i don't know but this is very russian this is definitely a russian solution so i'm surprised they didn't do it in chernobyl i mean who knows given the way the soviet union worked they probably that was probably one of the 300 options on the table that they initially proposed as well you know we could actually just destroy the reactor before it slowly destroys itself uh if I don't know what exactly you would have to utilize to, you know, blow apart that massive piece of metal in a way that it would just, you know, its own internal combustion would end. Don't know how possible that is. I mean, even nuclear weapons still leave uh, metallic, metallic residue behind. So yeah. I don't really know what you would have to do. Um, but it does seem as though everything sort of burned itself out and then they had to address the problems that they had created on top of that. Uh, and once the reactor burned itself out, that was when all of like the really nitty gritty cleanup work happened. Titus can maybe I... talk about that, but the whole aspect of basically taking huge amounts of topsoil and then burying them underneath other spots of soil and destroying forests and, all this business that uh, was equally ridiculous uh, and didn't really seem to solve any problems. Uh, but that was well, when, once the reactor burned itself out, that was when the actual cleanup, as it were, was starting to happen. Right. So with the reactor being sort of burnt out, the issue sort of remaining is the radiation that been leaked in the first place and had fallen into the fallen from the atmosphere onto the surrounding areas. Um, and uh, I have uh, some rough figures. Uh, uh, by the end of 1986, uh, more than 600 uh, villages within the area, uh, uh, village, 600 villages and towns uh, had been uh, decontaminated. By decontaminated, I mean, uh, by that I mean uh, evacuated and then bulldozed. Um, around 300,000 uh, square meters of earth uh, were dug up, uh, so forests were uh, uh, torn down, fields uh, were turned over themselves, uh, and giant. Uh, you, you know, the the exclusion zone remains to this day thirty uh, a thirty kilometer uh, no go zone, which is actually like a big nature preserve now. Curiously enough, yeah, more animals live there per square kilometer, I think, than anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> they may have they may have uh, yeah. additional limbs and, and eyes but uh, I, some of that actually i think has been exaggerated uh yeah so there, there's actually a really great article in wired uh called the chernobyl disaster may have also built a paradise uh and it notes that animals there uh, from tests done recently do not seem to have any radioactive symptoms or don't really seem to even be uh, affected by any of their uh, remnant radioactivity in the area 
which is very, very odd. Uh, and so and most of the plant life seems to be doing spectacularly well uh, for whatever reason. As, as far as uh, uh, 2016, I think there's actually over 160 people uh, living within the exclusion zone um, because the, the immediate sarcophagus uh, they had to replace in 2016 uh, with one that will last, uh, I think, around 100 years or so. Um, and at that time uh, of completion, there was already there were already people living uh, there already. Yeah, they. Uh, yeah, let's talk also a little bit about the tourism to the zone. Mm. Namely, recently you had uh, the Jewish train uh, declared a, a part of a the tour, uh, tourism industry in, in Ukraine. He says. New life. Until now, Chernobyl was a negative part of Ukraine's brand. It's time to change. Well, it's not much different than, I guess, Poland advertising all the concentration camps. Yeah. A huge part of the Polish uh, tourism industry these days. Is it really? I, I know they do yeah. do Auschwitz, but uh, is it like the major oh, yeah. section there, of their that's tourism? Huge, uh, that's a huge part of like the whole Polish uh, tourism industry is all this World War II shenanigans and concentration camp stuff and death camp stuff. Yeah, the Wolf's Den, I think Hitler's uh, it, forward it, command it, post. It's literally like a billion dollar industry for huh. this point, the whole advertising. Wow. Oh, yeah. They make a, they make a killing off of that. But it, you know, I don't know, uh, there is, I guess, pictures and footage of people venturing deep inside the sarcophagus, uh, and they seem to be okay. There's a, uh, yeah, there's a famous photo of, like, the core, like the nuclear reactor's core, and I believe it's called the elephant's foot. It is effectively the molten remains that is cooled of the fuel rods, the control rods, the reactor housing, whatever they were dumping from the helicopters, all fused into one. And yeah, it's that's just the this very slime eerie. Hans was talking. Yeah, was talking about. and and yeah. that's that's I think it's called corium, but it's it's this sort of a kind of pseudo scientific label they attach to fused concrete, lead, uh, boron, uranium. You know, it's an ungodly concoction, uh, if nothing else. But uh, there's a very, very unique uh, shape that was formed from that. But, one but one might videos. call it hellish. I think that picture that you're talking about, sort of an infamous picture, was taken like in the 90s. But th there are videos now on YouTube of people just walking through the sarcophagus, walking through into these old rooms and kind of walking around on top of heaps of metal and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, they're probably even touching pieces of the reactor, and they seem to be okay. This seems to be, uh, like, a thing that they do regularly there. I mean, if if I knew the risks well enough, and I'm not sure I do, and I definitely wouldn't venture in without understanding them, but my personality and the stuff that I like to, to see, that would be a fucking trip to see that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd like I'd like to I that's it's it's on my bucket list of places. Um I would definitely like to see it. 
And I don't, I don't know at this point if the elephant's foot and some of that stuff is actually still giving off a, an intense amount of radiation, but there's a possibility that in, in our lifetimes it will you know, have died down enough where you can physically walk up to it. Well, yeah, Instagram accounts and selfies. <laughs> yeah, take a selfie with the elephant's foot. <laughs> it's what is that rock in Ireland, the, the Blarney Rock or, or Stone or something like Blarney that? Blarney Stone, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kiss the elephant's foot for good luck. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, so Ukraine, uh, or, or, or I guess the area, seems to be doing fine now. Um there was uh, an element of the uh, the Chernobyl disaster that I always thought was interesting, and in that the amount of radiation that was actually poured across Europe, uh, not only Eastern Europe but Scandinavia and even into parts of Western Europe, um, it, it actually ha it's part of my wider theory on why the uh, current generation of like gen uh, like late Gen X. I'm sorry, very, uh, yeah, late Gen X and early millennial Europeans are like so weird and uh, just not performing well. Um, and that it, they were all. Yeah, but Americans are, and Canadians are like that too. Well, the, that, yeah, but the, let me just run with this. So basically, <laughs> okay. them, them and, their, and their parents and their surroundings were actually so deeply irradiated that it actually fried their brains or something. Something actually happened physically. And you can actually see that the, like, the rise of the weird uh, politics in a lot of these countries, especially in Scandinavia, takes place around 10 to 15 years after the, the Chernobyl incident. And that's all of this sort of uh, random uh, immigration stuff and goofy behavior that we now ascribe to, to Scandos, uh, particularly Swedes. Uh, my theory for a long time has been that the those people were effectively irradiated and combined with their existing culture, they've, uh, they're, they're physically unable at a neurochemical level of perceiving reality properly. And they probably have, you know, there's probably a massive amount of birth defects that have gone undiagnosed. And un well, I'll give you, I'll give you a hard fact that we do know of. There were 130,000 abortions conducted because of this, and uh, those people yeah. are never going to come back. Wow. I would have That's seen people thing. affected by this in Western Europe. You know, squatting with AK-74s. And track suits and gas masks. I mean, if, if, do, do we actually know if there was some kind of massive uptick in cancer rates in Europe after this? No, I mean, not, not, not really. really. There's a little bit, yes, but it, it is something like a thousand cases. And yeah, there, the, there's projected to be only about 60,000 more no. over the next uh, 50 years. And compared to the rest of cancer, it's only like 0.01%. So it really the, isn't the that only much. Parts, yeah, the, I understand also the uptick in the amount of children that were named Strelock. Oh, yeah, very good. I was wondering who was going to mention <laughs> Stalker first. Thank you. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> what were you going to say, Titus, before? Oh, well, yeah. So in, just in terms of like cancer... Um, yeah, the only areas that that were sort of affected with uh, a rise, and it wasn't even like that steep a rise, were areas in, in Belarus and and some surrounding areas in Ukraine. Um, 
you know, we, we, you have to uh, factor in, in terms of like the human cost of Chernobyl, um, the vast majority of deaths were because of paranoia uh, in Western Europe, uh, which, which accounts for, for the figures of, of the high rates of abortions that took place there uh, that, that Adam stated. And I, I do have some specific figures um, in Greece uh, during the month of May uh, 1987. 23% of all babies in early stages were aborted. Um, and in Italy, uh, there's a, a figure of uh, 28 to 52 unnecessary abortions per day for up to five months after the uh, incident. So um, the the press in, in, and again, you have to factor in sort of the Cold War propaganda, uh, but also sort of the, the the paranoia of of nuclear energy. Um, the press really feasted on this story, and uh, it created a, a genuine tragedy. We lost a hundred thousand plus uh, European children uh, because of it. And how many people actually died? Uh, this figure is highly disputed, depending on where you go for the information. It's it's impossible. It's it's an impossible. Uh, it's an impossible number to 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 quantify um, because you have to factor in uh, many things in terms of acute radiation sickness. So um, the people who were sort of killed in the explosion and killed in the immediate aftermath, only 31. Um, in terms of the miners and the liquidators and the biorobots, all of those 800,000 people who were drafted into cleaning up the mess, no records were kept of them. So we don't know how many of them died. We don't know how many of them contracted cancer and died died sooner than they should have. Uh, it's an impossible statistic to, to, to verify or know. And do we know uh, if anyone was, I mean, this is probably not known, but is there any indication that people were disappeared or maybe even died in suspicious circumstances as a result of uh, being involved with this or potentially trying to speak out about it. I know that uh, Legosov, uh, the one of the chief scientists who helped solve the problem, uh, killed himself, allegedly yes. killed himself, uh, two years after the fact. But do we know of anyone that just got black banned or, or killed by potentially government actor for trying to speak out? No. Um, and Legosov uh, killed himself uh, for numerous reasons. One, he, he had, because all of the scientists working on the issue of, of fixing Chernobyl stayed in Pripyat, uh, they were all given uh, massive amounts of radiation just from, from the leakage alone. Um, so he was sort of dying uh, from the radiation sickness. And he also, uh, because he sort of was trying to fix the issues inherent to the reactor. Uh, he was sort of blackballed by the establishment and no one would, would listen to him. So he, he killed himself out of sickness and of despair. Um, Boris Sherbina, who was uh, the minister who was put in charge of the uh, sort of Chernobyl cleanup, um, died three years later due to cancer. Um, but in terms of, of uh, people who were black bagged, no, um, there was a, a trial uh, for the three heads of the um, 
of the power station. Uh, two of them are still alive today. The only one who died uh, was Anatoly Dyatlov of, of acute radiation poisoning. I believe at a very late age, though. So yeah. did he go to prison, though? Like, I, I remember seeing actual footage of him. He went and to he's... a labor camp. Or yeah. Yeah, they were. They were uh, all three of those were all three of them were sentenced uh, to 10 years uh, hard labor. God, and, I, I, I mean, I might have just killed myself at that point. You know, just knowing I was at the controls and something like that happened. I don't know if I could live with myself. But he only served three years. Yes. Ah, they yeah, they were all released early uh, due to sickness. Um, and Dietloff, I think, died in 1995. Uh, Fomin, uh, who was the second in command, uh, did try to kill himself. Uh, he was released from prison due to uh, him being uh, confirmed as mentally insane. And uh, ironically, uh, he was... Uh, he healed himself up and he actually returned to work at another nuclear power station. So. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. He's got quite the resume. Uh, yeah, he does. Yeah. I was there. I have the t-shirt. Um, yeah, it's got radiation burn holes in it, but you know, I was there. Um, yeah. Don't touch the t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. Right. But I got it. <laughs> yeah. It's in a lead suitcase. Um, at some well, point, I, I wanted to make a, a quick point that yeah, allegedly, and Titus, can you if you can confirm this? Some of the reactors at Chernobyl were still running until the year two thousand. Is that correct? The three other ones were. Yeah, the three remaining reactors yeah. were. <laughs> well, they they shut down a couple of them, and then the last one was decommissioned in two thousand, from what I know. Um, yeah, they. Yeah, they ahead. did shut down. They did eventually after uh, Lagosov killed himself. They they did end up fixing sort of the some of the inherent issues with our, the RBKM reactors. But yeah, they uh, they some of them were still operational until 2000. Yeah, and you got to remember and when I first learned about that, I I was, you know, a bit younger and I, it just blew my mind that they would continue running those things, but you know, now it makes sense because the the poverty in that part of the world is pretty intense. And there's there's no money to build a new power plant like that, and you you're basically asking people to shut off power supplies to hospitals, to schools, basic core infrastructure. I mean, you said it it goes to uh, Kiev, and so you know that that's a major asset to the country uh, and a liability at the same time. So I, I seem to recall the uh, the total costs of cleanup <clears throat> in today's dollars for the USSR as a whole uh, were something close to 300 billion dollars and for the size of the economy back then uh, that was a substantial blow uh, and many many people not only uh, point to the financial burden but also the the psychological burden this placed on the soviet system and the people uh, and paved the way to further support for glasnost and perestroika and all that that and, really and weakened the power structure at the top to, to hold the reins together and to and to compare the costs the, it's an estimation that the Soviets spent 50 billion, only 50 billion in its war in Afghanistan. So this is an astronomical amount of money for the Soviets to be to be spending. Yeah, and I think um, I think I heard the Ukrainian uh, government's budget is still uh, five to seven, five to seven percent of it is still going towards the the costs of Chernobyl uh, in Belarus. Uh, I, I didn't. I couldn't quite believe the numbers I heard on this, so I won't repeat them. But there is also substantial cost, uh, mainly in healthcare and things like that. Uh, th these are estimates and and all that. It, it sort of gets messy over time, especially. But uh, the the costs are still there, and to 
remove this asset, you're you're it, arguably you're pushing yourself further into the the liability category. So it, it is kind of a tough uh, triage decision they had to make. It's like we, okay, we got to keep these things running. This was after the fall of their entire system, and there's no funds to create something this of this scale again for for much longer. And then there also is a a new containment. Uh, it's not even a dome. It's like an archway, sort of like a, a the radiation taco. I've I've sort of come to call it, but it, it they rolled it literally over the existing power station. And the engineering required to build this thing is pretty insane. They had to bring in, I think, French engineering companies to help them design it and construct it on site. And then they put uh, these custom rails that would allow them to build it off of the super dangerous area uh, immediately around the power station. And they, they could build it a little bit away from there and then roll the completed containment sh- half shell over the the power plant. It just it's a poor country. I mean, and they're having to do this stuff. And frankly, I'm I'm actually even surprised they're doing that much, uh, given how how poorly they maintain their infrastructure in other places. If you look at the the Soviet uh, Navy, uh, they've had a lot of recent problems whereby a lot of it was uh, corruption and theft and just negligence. They weren't, uh, they, they'd sold off like backup generators that were used to pump out water of some of their ships. And so one of these ships, while it was in dry dock, mind you, not moving, it actually started sinking and listing in the dry dock. And that was uh, something I think I mentioned last year. And this is in Russia, granted, but Ukraine, Russia, I mean, despite their disagreements, how dissimilar are they really compared to the rest of uh, the European civilization, right? Uh, they're, they're kind of a unique people. So I'm surprised they were even able to pull together that much effort and, and money and resources to build this containment facility. But from what I can tell, it is helping. So I'm grateful for it. Uh, and then lastly, at some point, if you guys don't have anything more, I'd like to talk about the pros and cons of nuclear power in general. I'd like to discuss that. Well, I just wanted to say, and we, then we can get to that, uh, but I wanted to say, and maybe Titus will agree with me, the Soviets lucked out because their early reforms had actually produced a pretty smart population, and they had a, a huge amount of experienced and seasoned engineers and scientists uh, and data analysts and military officials who knew how to handle things like this and actually apply pretty sound principles and their sort of uh, veteran common sense to this particular problem. Uh, most countries would have collapsed if this happened. Even, I think, po- powerful and large countries would have simply collapsed under the weight of this. Uh, you can imagine how this would have played out in India or how this would have played out maybe even in China or other large, powerful countries, uh, Australia, uh, Indonesia, Canada, Brazil, you know, they would have simply collapsed under the weight of this problem, under the cost. Uh, they probably would have been unable to address the issues. I, I think that's uh, debatable. I mean, arguably, the Soviet Union did debatable. collapse. I think that the Soviet Union managed, probably had the greatest amount per capita at the time, of scientists and engineers in any other country on the planet. At the time, yeah, sure. But and if you're talking about China today, I don't think that's true anymore. 
and they had been working for so long with so little and had to come up with very ingenious solutions to a ton of problems that I think that they were the probably you know what the showrunner of the of the series had said they were probably the only people maybe outside of western europeans and americans that could have actually pulled this off pulled off not only the cleanup but the actual engineering required to fix the problem immediately and then also fix it permanently uh that that was you know, they they lucked out in that they had this very smart committed population that cared about each other and a lot of the scientists and engineers and even military officials did not want to see several hundred thousand dead and millions of displaced fellow citizens uh because of a, a screw-up and because of corruption i think you're right about the solidarity uh in the soviet system actually was a, a huge asset and i agree with what you're saying about their and that and that's sufficient expertise. The, reason, the reason why they were they threw out the old regime i mean when that, right that, that's the solidarity in that this is true. actually something that our old buddy alex used to say but that the solidarity in the soviet population was why they were able to pull off what was basically a revolt and they were able to collectively come together regardless of their background and say you know we're tired of this and none of us are doing well under this system and we wanted to do something new we need to get out of this as soon as possible and they were able to resist all of those uh, communist hardliners who were threatening to kill them. And they kind of yeah. stood together and said, okay, you're going to have to kill all of us in order to pull that off. Well, really what's interesting is you mentioned China and, and you, you think that they wouldn't be able to hold the country together if this were to happen. Um, no. But I have to mention though, and it wasn't a nuclear power plant, um, even though they're building probably the most in the world at the moment. So watch that space. But uh, at the time, um, yes, in the 80s, I don't think China had much nuclear capability, if any. They did have the bombs, but I don't know how, how their reactor fleet looked. But the um, the fact is, in China, I think it was actually a Soviet design, somewhat ironically, um, there was a series of uh, dams that had broken that killed, we're talking like 100,000 plus people. And the government still held. And you could describe that to reasons that have nothing to do with solidarity. It could be just the, the brutality of the, the Chinese government. Uh, and, and we did a show about how the, the Maoist government operated and how many people were killed under it. So I, I would just describe that to just, uh, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's, yeah, go yeah ahead. well, it's, I, I think it's a unique blend of both. Um, you have sort of the, the, the coldness of, of the state apparatus being able to, a mass and sort of, you know, throw 800,000 people, you know, into this sort of boiling cauldron to fix the issue. Um, and that's sort of the, the top down sort of strength, uh, or, or rather the, you know, uh, attribute, at least, let's say, uh, of the Soviet system. And then you have sort of the bottom up, which is the, you know, the selflessness uh, of that. Um, and I think, you know, for better or worse, uh, you know, Russians tend to work best under extremely dire circumstances when their back is against the wall. I think that's when they're most effective and that's when they show the most heart. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's a combination of, of the both sort of the, the callowness of towards human life, towards individuality uh, of, of the Soviet state, but also sort of the solidarity of, of the masses. There is, there's a moment, uh, uh, Sherbina says to the men that are, he's trying to get volunteers 
to do this job, I think for the roof job. And he basically says a thousand years of suffering has prepared you for this moment. I think, you know, our people, our people have undergone a thousand years of suffering and it's all led up to this, which is the make or break it moment. And if we don't fix this right now, and if that thousand years doesn't pay off right now, everything we've fought for is over in this part of our country. Like th this is place will be permanently uninhabitable and everything we ever did for it will be worthless. Uh, I think that whether or not Sherbina actually said that, I don't know. It, I wouldn't be shocked if he did or if he didn't. Um, but it does speak to something about, I think, what was going on in the Soviet Union, especially towards its end, and that yeah. the, the Russians were actually rediscovering themselves as being Russians and being tied to this past, and that they cared about each other and they were trying to prevent something really terrible from happening. Uh, and they were utilizing all these years of scientific reforms and mandatory scientific education across the population uh, to their benefit. Uh, you know, a lot of people have actually pointed out in the modern geopolitical scene that the Russians are still very much reliant on this legacy Soviet uh, engineering capital. In other words, that the a lot of the best engineers and best scientists still working for the Russian state and some Russian companies were educated into the Soviet system. And it's part of what's still propelling them forward is that they had mass educated uh, the greatest per capita amount of engineers and scientists the world had ever seen and had actually given them real projects to work on constantly and consistently. Uh, that is really the, like their greatest success. And it's what ended up saving them and that, that they had enough people to simply throw at the problem to come up with a lot of solutions that ended up working pretty well, uh, all things considered. I mean, the, the, the best thing you can say about Chernobyl is that it all it all panned out for the most part. Uh, everything was sort of fixed, and we're you know Eastern Europe is doing just fine for the most part now, uh, especially given some of the dire predictions at the time of what could happen. Everything seems to have worked pretty effectively. They were able to solve a problem that no one had ever seen before. You guys have a few minutes to talk about nuclear power in general. Sure. Sure. So. <clears throat> I can give my, my sort of perspective and you guys can hopefully chime in and let me know what you think. Um, I'm, I have a mixed view on nuclear power. I, I'm not one of the, these guys that thinks that it's just uh, horrific. And if you remember after uh, Fukushima, when the tsunami hit Japan and I mean, one in a thousand event that was, but it, it basically knocked out the coastal power station at Fukushima that uh, was essentially just hit with a giant, uh, oceanic sledgehammer and the cooling system broke but after that uh, germany uh just declared they're they're basically planning on shutting down i i think they they, they planned it i don't think they shut it down overnight because that would be dangerous and obviously capacity issues would present themselves but they basically said we're getting off nuclear power uh and then right next door mind you uh france runs i think almost like a 70 percent or more uh, mix of nuclear reactors and other uh, forms of power generation for their entire country and they export a lot of that to the rest of europe so in other words they're most of their power is generated from nuclear power plants and they're not going to shut that off that's crazy uh germany on the other hand though they they have coal and other uh, means but 
you know, nuclear is often put forward as a solution to, if you believe in climate change, a solution to reducing CO2 emissions. Uh, and then on the other hand, people just don't trust it after event accidents like this, and Germany is an example of that. Uh, so I have a kind of a mixed view of it. I think it's um, it's tough to sort of write off this this solution that is embedded in society to shut it down overnight would be arguably even worse because you're talking about, uh, again, power to hospitals and key infrastructure and logistics, grocery stores. I mean, you can't just do these things that quickly uh, without severe consequences. But over time, over the long run, uh, it's a tough question because I do believe we're going to run into resource limitations, especially with the growing population. And there's just not enough fossil fuels out there. Uh, solar, I think, is an interesting one. Uh, but there again, if you analyze things on a very crude metric like cost per kilowatt to generate, uh, solar is actually cheaper now in, in at least some parts of the world than nuclear power. The problem with that, though, is that only some parts of the world. Uh, Germany, for example, they have a program called uh, Energy Venda, uh, so like change for energy. And Energy Venda is, I believe, how they would pronounce it. But it's basically a plan to transform and transition the country off of the older forms of power generation into the newer forms. And Germany is one of the cloudier places in Europe, yet they have, I think, the largest solar panel installation of all countries there. And economically, it just doesn't really make sense. And that's sort of one of the arguments against using just one solution like that, uh, solar in particular. Uh, but if you if you use that as a combined portfolio, this is what I sort of believe is the right solution. You have a little bit of solar, you have a little bit of wind, you have hydroelectric where it makes sense, but you don't do one or the other. And nuclear, the, the benefits of it is it may not be the most uh, cheap, uh, and it is arguably more expensive than even the natural gas uh, and coal alternatives. Uh, some estimates put it, uh, at even two times as expensive if you factor in, they call it uh, leveled costs, where you factor in the construction, operation, and decommissioning, and also the waste waste disposal. Uh, there's various estimates. Uh, the European Energy Commissions have done this. Uh, the United States University of Chicago has done this. Uh, Canada has done this. Uh, the estimates range from about 20% to uh, 200% more expensive than alternatives like coal. But again, the benefits are you don't have the pollution uh, at the very least. You know, you don't have acid rain or whatever is coming off of coal. Uh, and then you don't have the CO2. And you also don't rely upon a very limited uh, finite resource. Uranium is also a, a finite resource. But I think in terms of just the relative supply, I think you have a lot, a lot more of it. So my position is it's part of the solution, but not the only solution. And I don't want to get rid of it, uh, despite the inherent risks. And there are new reactors. So that's my that's my end of my speech. Uh, what do you guys think about nuclear power? I would just second everything that you just said. I, I in terms of uh, you know maintaining sort of an energy output or, or rather adapting to it towards you know uh, eventual sort shortages or environmental uh, issues that are going to end up plaguing us. I do think that it is part of the solution. Uh, but as you said, it's it's not the only part. Um, the only thing that I would add um, uh, to, to what you said, Adam, is uh, I, I'd like to sort of uh, briefly mention uh, Germany's uh, idiotic idea of, of, of getting rid of all their nuclear power. This is probably uh, 
Merkel's uh, second worst uh, decision uh, that she's made. Uh, the first, obviously, being uh, the uh, yeah. immigration Refugees policy welcome. in Germany. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I would I would encourage everyone if if you're <laughs> ever in the mood to be uh, emotionally devastated, uh, look up the deforestation that is happening um, to Germany's Hambach Forest, which is one of their oldest forests in Germany. Um, and it is being stripped currently by uh, coal companies in Germany. Um, oh, is that, where, is that where the lignite is? I mean, there's, there's a, an extremely a massive coal mine in Germany. Uh, it's called a Tagebau Garzweiler, and it's, mm. it, it's infamous because they have these uh, giant, uh, I forget what they're called, but they, they look like uh, something out of steampunk. Yeah. Where these these huge arms and these excavating uh, bucket excavators is what they're called. They they're they're so large. Each of these buckets you probably could fit uh, almost like a mining truck inside of one. And so forget the mining truck. Just put a, a bucket on a giant arm that has a huge counterweight on the other cent other end of it. So this thing is bigger than a football field. And then the the coal field that it's operating on. You can just imagine how big how many square kilometers it is. I don't know if that's what you're referring to, but that is actually. Um, one of the biggest uh, scars on the earth in, in literal yeah. terms that is going on in the coal mining industry. That's exactly uh, where the area and it's, it's, they are actively reducing uh, one of the oldest forests in Europe, one of the oldest and most beautiful forests. If I remember correctly, um, it was the inspiration for the brothers Grimm uh, sort of the, the fairy tales that they uh, constructed the forest that they were referencing was Hambach forest. Uh, and, the German government is allowing it to be turned into literal sludge. Um, it's, uh, I mean, uh, I don't have anything other than uh, curses to, uh, to to add to that. So I think I'll just, <laughs> I think I'll just stop myself here. The, but yeah, the it's, it's a travesty. The arguments against nuclear energy uh, are mostly emotional. Yeah, and mostly paranoia and. and the two most recent uh, in modern history nuclear uh, screw-ups that we've referenced tonight uh, actually would be uh, Chernobyl and Fukushima. And in both cases, they were the result of an extreme amount of corruption and an extreme amount of poor planning and poor project management and poor engineering and poor quality management as well after the, after the initial engineering had been uh, Tesco, which is the uh, company behind Fukushima, it was revealed over the course of the years. I think it might be TEPCO, but yeah. TEPCO, I'm sorry, Tep, Tep, TEPCO. Uh, it was revealed over the course of several years, uh, all of the, these intricate levels of corruption that, that were going on with the company in general, this project in particular, uh, and so on. Um, it was deeply obvious that this was done very haphazardly without a lot of care and there was an immense amount of bribery of poor quality engineering of lack of motivation all sorts of things that went into this so the arguments against nuclear energy are basically well uh i'm scared of it and the last couple times that there's been problems there's been this corruption aspect to it if you're able to construct a way in which there's a lack uh, or you know you can combat the corruption you can ensure that there's quality standards that there's you know there's quality engineering 
There's real QA work. There's extensive testing on every major and minor piece. Everything is measured properly. The sensors adequately work. You know, I was actually trying to get on an airplane a couple months ago. And we actually ended up sitting at, uh, I ended up sitting, me and like 100 other people, whatever, sat on plane on the runway for over an hour because they, they, they said that one of the sensors wasn't working. And they, they, and I was pissed off, obviously. But that level of care, you know, quality, I thought, I was actually kind of remarked with it. You know, oh, wow. So we're not even going to take off one single uh, is not working. And they waited, and they waited, and they, they brought mechanics out. They uh, recycled the engines, everything. Sensor you know, starts to work properly. It was a small electrical issue, and then we take off. If you ensure that kind of you know, quality management, you can probably alleviate most of the problems with the nuclear industry. And if you, you know, someone had mentioned France, the French have been extensively utilizing nuclear technology for decades, and they have not had any major, major problems yet. Germany uh, hasn't either, and that's that's yeah, yeah. The tragedy. I, I think that as long as that there's a quality, unless you open up a rift in time like that show, right? Don't do that. Oh, dark pro tip. Yeah, the the, the, the show, but um, you know, as long as the quality engineering is there, and there's a lot, and you know, corruption is actively combated, there's really no great argument against the use of nuclear power, the expansion of it, or at least the maintaining of current levels of production. Uh, I think that uh, in in the case of Germany, you know, we, we've we've always speculated for years that a lot of what's going on in Germany is deeply sadistic and intentional. And I would suspect nothing less of the uh, Merkel clan that uh, yeah. this is very much intentional at just further destroy, you know, the further destruction of the German way of life and the German economy is basically to deprive them of this adequate energy resource. Yeah. Um, and I think in the United States, nuclear engineering is really on its way out. Uh, for the most part, uh, it actually after Three Mile Island, there was this period in time where nuclear engineering is probably the worst field to go and do when you were going to college, uh, and a lot of universities basically stopped offering it as a major and stopped offering courses because no one wanted to take them because there was no jobs because the nuclear industry was falling apart, and it actually rebounded somewhat. But in in recent years, with a series of industrial environmental disasters, and then I think uh, Fukushima. Uh, nuclear engineering in this country and nuclear innovation has really gone the way of the dodo. Uh, it's also it's also a cost thing. The it, it is a cost thing, but I that that was never an issue before. In the, in the United States, that was not an issue with the nuclear industry. It's it's almost a hundred percent now that people are scared of it, and that there is a real fear around uh, poor quality, poor levels of engineering, which is something that's becoming more and more pervasive in the United States, poor levels of engineering, just as the way the, you know, it was exhibited in the late Soviet Union. Um, and I think just general paranoia. Uh, well, and, and also sort of, you know, propaganda by the competitors, of course. Yes. Sure, yeah. You know, yes. natural gas and oil companies. Yeah. Are, well, I, natural I gas in particular though, are why. Way more diverse in the engineer. <laughs> Is there any more diversity in our engineering? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to well, what effect? India, India hasn't had a, a nuclear... 
so I think we should uh, just, uh, you know, let in half a million more uh, Indian engineers and let them run our power plants. Uh, how that could go wrong. Designed, uh, flying death traps with the Boeing Maxes. So you know, <laughs> what, what could be the harm of giving them a stationary death trap? <laughs> well, it was... We need... It was actually George Bush, uh, the second junior, who signed the agreement with India to transfer American nuclear power plant technology in, for some reason, I don't know what the State Department had told him uh, in order to sort of convince him that that was a good idea, but that was during his administration. I remember that very clearly. Uh, You know, that's the, if we're going to close in anything. That was before the transfer of plumbing technology. (laughs) (laughs) That was before Bill Gates went over there and and offered the the toilet. We really should have started out with the basics, like an Iron Age and indoor plumbing our way up to here's a nuclear power plant Uh, why don't you you take a stab at it kid skipping a few steps in terms of uh, nuclear technology has never been an issue before industrial revolutions you know know, if anything we're going to close if we can close on anything it's a lot of people in the world definitely don't deserve to be running a nuclear power plant yes Uh, and most of all was the south africa did not deserve to have that kind of the, the kind of quality and smart populace that they had, they, they didn't, that, that regime did not deserve it at all. And they basically. Well, that actually brings up. Oh, all, you mentioned South Africa. And what is interesting to me about nuclear power that in the event of a state collapse or any serious upheaval problem, because it needs to be that other other sources are also it, I mean they are effectively uh, bombs waiting yeah so my point was that nuclear power is fragile to political upheavals e.g. South Africa uh, I, I would interpret it this way I think you are likely to see a political upheaval if you have a disaster of this scale And that's arguably what happened to the Soviet Union. The magnitude and and scope of the Chernobyl disaster um, shouldn't be counted in terms of physical uh, physical uh, uh, casualties, but perhaps in terms of of psychic trauma. Um, Gorbachev, uh, in his memoirs, did state that uh, he believed the fallout uh choice of words uh uh, not intended of the chernobyl disaster to be the main catalyst of the end of the soviet union uh and by proxy the end of you know the the cold war um so the effects of chernobyl although it is not uh the nuclear disaster that it could have been in terms of the levels of radiation and the the vast killing of 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 eastern europeans the political ramifications and and the moral uh, uh, or rather the morale the, the 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 collapse of morale within the the soviet uh nick is typing hail godzilla <laughs> hail the friendly adam 
Mr. Burns will be proud. 